0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter one, be reading a well-known passage about the Annunciation, the angel making known to Mary the birth of Christ. We'll be starting verse 26, going through 38. This is God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. we come and examine one of the greatest mysteries in your plan of redemption. We ask that you would give us understanding, but also wonder at who you are. Would we not only know these doctrines, but would that knowledge cause us to have a greater love for you and rejoice in how you have acted and are acting in history? Spirit, grant us power to hear and to understand. And to change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, almost 15 years ago, I took a wild ride of sorts. Back in my seminary days, I was a youth director for my previous church where I grew up. And every year, Elizabeth and I would take the youth to a retreat at a Bible conference called Pinebrook, incidentally, where we met for the first time. And the great thing about it was that this was a serving retreat. They would actually wait on tables over the weekend and do the dishes and other things. But we got some time off on ourselves to to study the word and to play together. Well, one of those retreats our intrepid Volvo. Some of you might remember that that white classic that we brought down with us refused to start after a rainstorm. It was known for doing that. And so we had AAA A plus for good reason. And we called the tow truck and the driver got the Volvo on the back of the truck and I spent the next hour with him in the cab as he drove me and my car to our mechanics back in the Lehigh Valley. Well, the conversation's about 15 years old, and I don't remember all the details, but we started chatting, and he found out I was a Christian and, and maybe a seminary student, and somehow we got around to the virgin birth. I don't know why. It was shortly after Christmas. I didn't bring it up. Maybe it was on his mind, but the conversation went something like this. So let me get this straight. You believe that God became man and was born as a baby. Yes. Without a human father. Yes. Um, How did that happen? Well, uh, you see, the the Holy Spirit created a person inside Mary. Doesn't that sound a little strange to you? No, it is unusual. That's crazy, man. I don't remember what I said in response, but I do remember as I was just clearly stating the truth of the virgin birth out loud and seeing his incredulous face. I'm thinking, yeah, this this really is quite incredible. And today we are going to examine those truths about our Savior's birth. Jesus, the Messiah, was born of the Virgin Mary without human conception. There was no man involved. Instead, the Holy Spirit began the person of Jesus to begin the first of a new humanity. Now, we sing about this. We confess it in our creeds. But here's the question today. (laughs) Why does the virgin birth matter? Why is this so important? And here's the answer that will be the outline for our sermon. Because God became man for your salvation. Why does it matter? Because God became man for your salvation. Without the virgin birth, you don't have that. I'd like to give credit to B.B. Warfield. He's a theologian from the last century. He wrote a helpful article, Supernatural Birth of Jesus, which has shaped some of my thinking. If you read it, you would see that. But let's just look at those three headings and see how the virgin birth helps us understand how God became man for your salvation. Well, God, immediately there's objections with that today. The virgin birth is nonsense. Life doesn't work that way. That's, That's my friend in the pickup truck, right? And on the surface, you can sympathize, can't you? After all, Joseph didn't believe Mary when she told him her story. The angel had to appear to Joseph to say, no, no, what Mary said was actually true. But this idea that, well, there, there really is no God, so it can't happen. This is grounded on naturalistic assumptions. This world is all there is. You're born, you live, you die, that's it. And above all, there is no God or supernatural or anything incredible. If we can't explain it yet... Someday we will. Well, this leads to those then who were skeptical of scripture. And over a hundred years ago, as as secularism, or you could just say functional disbelief in God, became popular in our country, the virgin birth started to get really embarrassing for those who wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to be popular with the in crowd who were outside the church and no longer believed in God, but but the Bible was still a cultural force. And so we couldn't just outright reject it. And after all, there is some value of literary and morality. And so here was their solution. Well, the virgin birth was an add-on. Right? Many years after Jesus' death, and of course he never actually rose from the dead yet claim, his followers began worshipping him. And so they made up the resurrection and Jesus' deity. And so then, well, they added the virgin birth to, you know, kind of complete the picture. And, and really, so... Chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew and Luke are are add-ons. They're taken really from past myth. I mean, the virgin birth only shows up in two places, clearly in addition. Today, objections, if there are any, are probably just more along the lines of, whatever, man, you're just teaching past doctrines and dead white privilege. It's got nothing to do with my life. Well, how can we respond to this? I'm not going to spend the whole sermon trying to win over the skeptics. I'm going to respond to you as a church by giving you God's truth. Well, the first response is that the church has believed this ever since the very beginning. The virgin birth is taught too early by the church to believe it was added later. Not to mention that it's easily demonstrable that the beginning of the Gospels are actually intact and should be there. Listen to what the church father Ignatius, now he was martyred in 117. So just a generation or two after the disciples, listen to what he said. He said, for our God, Jesus, the Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. And hidden from the prince of this world were the virginity of Mary and her childbearing and likewise also the death of the Lord. Three mysteries to be cried aloud, which were wrought in the silence of God. Seems to be pretty positive about the virgin birth may have even known the Apostle John, may have been discipled by him. Irenaeus, who comes just a few decades later, says, if one does not accept the Son of God's birth from a virgin, how can he accept his resurrection from the dead, And this is the same as we would recite in the Apostles' Creed, which our form comes much centuries later, but it's very clear that the content was already around by 150 AD, maybe even back further, clearly tied to the apostolic preaching. So we can say for certain the early church believed in the virgin birth and for good reason. Well, here's another reason. The reason we can believe in the virgin birth is that God acts in the real world. The Bible assumes a supernatural world. What are the first four words of scripture? In the beginning, God. It's as if God said to Moses, I'm not going to give you five foolproof arguments for my existence. I'm just going to tell you that I am so. And I act in this world. God acted first in creation when his spirit hovered over the empty and formless cosmos and he spoke through his word and shaped that universe into form and function and beauty. And that's what God does. God is a God who acts in history. And here in the passage, you see that he acts in Mary's life. I want you to stop, if you can, and put yourself in Mary's place. You're a young teenage girl. Who knows, 13, 14, 15? You're you're fairly poor. You're betrothed. You're engaged to your future husband. Right now, you're living in your father's house. The custom back then is that the groom would prepare a room In his father's house, when his father's ready, he would say, All right, you can go and you can claim your bride. That's that's what's going on in the the, uh, parable of the foolish virgins. So she's waiting for Joseph. What are your thoughts? When is Joseph going to come? I can't wait to set up home. How many kids will we have? That's your life. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to you in all of his brilliance and says, Greetings, favored one. God has special plans for you, You will bear the Messiah. Let's go back to verse 31 of chapter 1. Just listen to these, these descriptions again. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now stop here for a moment. Son of David, kingdom, having no end? Does that ring a bell? We've already read a passage, the call to worship from Isaiah, referencing the servant that God is going to send. Do you see what's happening here? The God who acted in history, way back through Isaiah, proclaiming that he's going to send him Messiah, now comes through his angel to Mary and say, here's how it matters for your life. You're going to bear that Messiah, Mary. Well, she had the same question. Anyone would. I'm not married. How is that going to happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and create in you new life just as he did when he made the world. Now what I want you to see here is how God acts and how seriously it disrupts Mary's life. She's filled with all what was, what's happening and yet what are the people going to think? What will Joseph do? The Lord appears to Joseph and tells him and Joseph takes them down to Egypt and Mary sees her son grow up and and live his death, his resurrection. She sees it all. It's what an adventure. But it's also very disruptive when God acts. The virgin birth was not just a theological nicety or obscure footnote of doctrine for Mary. It quite literally changed her. So why is this a, a proof or an argument of sorts? Well, notice. God doesn't explain everything to Mary. He doesn't say to her, well, she says, how can this be? He says, well, let me tell you about embryology. And then a little bit of the mystery of how the spiritual and the physical will come together. Now, well, through his angel Gabriel, he says, I am the Lord. This is how I'm going to work through you. It's an honor. There are question marks. It's as if God says, Mary, trust me. So what is Mary's response? She humbly submits. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Mary is a model for us to accept God for who he is and submit to his word. Now, so far, I've given you the truth from scripture, but that might not really be helpful in a conversation. If you're talking with your village atheist friend, I have plenty of those in the army. They're often quite polite and we have great conversations, but just do not accept the supernatural. Well, here's a provocative conversation starter that you can throw out. I got this from Evangelist Glenn Shrivener. It might work. It might not. And they say, you believe in the virgin birth? Really? And you could say, well, you believe in a virgin birth of sorts. You believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Except there's no virgin. Now, do you get what you're saying there? Now, their argument is don't be silly. Women don't conceive by themselves. God doesn't exist. You can't get half of something out of nothing virgin birth is impossible it's blind faith and you're saying well you say it's impossible that half of nothing came into being but don't you believe that all of nothing came into being i mean you believe that 4.5 billion years ago an inert speck of super compressed matter somehow exploded and out pops the world think about what you don't know if that's true you don't know where that speck came from or how it got there or how if it's inert how it exploded or how it formed a habitable world who the probability of just happening by chance is mathematically inconceivable. This isn't a gotcha question, but it's really a call for your friend to examine their own beliefs. You think that your views are so obvious and solid, but actually they take a lot more faith to believe that there's a God of the Bible who's revealed himself, and he has acted. So why does it matter that God, because the virgin birth, sets a decision point it asks you do I believe that the God of the Bible really exists or, or to ask this question biblically is anything too hard for the Lord if God created the world think about this if God created the world then creating a person in a young virgin is a pretty small matter but remove the virgin birth and you might as well remove God well God has acted it is supernatural it's not fanciful And the truth is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God took on a human nature. He became man. The virgin birth is more than supernatural. It's worth pointing out. B.B. Warfield notes that there are other supernatural births in scripture. Isaac, Samson, we read out John the Baptist. There's only one incarnation. Kids, what's incarnation? What does that mean? It literally means in the flesh. Now, we read a very long creed, at least by our standards today, fleshing out, maybe I shouldn't use that word, kind of teasing out what that means. But there's 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 boundaries that you you heard the one and the two, the God and the man. There's one person in two natures, somehow united, fully God and fully a man. I love how it says without confusion, without change. When when God the Son and the human nature of Jesus come together, you you can't look at one and say, oh, he's no longer God, He's, he's changed, he's confused. No, they're still distinct, and yet, at the same time, they are united in one person, without division, without separation. Now, if you sit yourself in a room for 15 minutes with nothing else, and you just think about that, you will get a headache. How does God the Son, who is infinite in every way, join himself to a human nature? Now, there's, there's, there's mystery here that we cannot explain. But the virgin birth does help us understand the incarnation about how God became man. It shows in our text. He's fully man. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Mary will bear a human son. I can't get any clearer than this. Now, this is a special child, but it's a human baby who goes through all the process of conception, gestation, birth, and all of that in every way this son of mary will be truly human and yet he's more than human look at verse 35 the angel answered her the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god now this is not the first passage i would turn to to defend the deity of jesus But in the context of Scripture, this is clearly speaking about Jesus' deity. Joseph is not the father here. God is. Now, now you could say Joseph was the human father of Jesus. He was his adopted father, but he's not the biological father. The Holy Spirit worked conception in Mary and Jesus was to be called sons of God. And in this context, and you can see others in scriptures, too, this is talking about his divine status. I invite you to look at some of the, the daily Bible readings. Philippians 2 and Hebrews 1, 4, 1, 1 through 4 would talk about those things. And so what the virgin birth does is it explains to you in simple ways the incarnation. To, to an extent that we can understand. Mary contributes Jesus' human nature. The Holy Spirit contributes Jesus' divine nature. And Mary gave birth to this person, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. That much we know. Anything else is a mystery too deep to us. for us. Well, why does this matter? What's the application here? Well, first of all, we know that it happened. And you might be saying, well, that's silly. Of course we know it happened. But it was not so clear in the early church. There were early Christians who thought Jesus was only an exceptional man, not divine. Some thought he was divine and only seemed to be a man. We've already shown in simple ways how the truths of Scripture rule both of those out as fully God and man. But there was another question. Okay, Jesus is the God-man, but when did he receive his divine nature? One of the answers that the church rejected was at his baptism. You 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 really think about it for a second. It it almost makes some sense. After all, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down on, on Jesus and God proclaims him as son. And so the claim was that Jesus was only human for the first 30 years of his life. And then his baptism, he had a sort of a sort of power up where he received a divine nature. Some would even say that Jesus' divine nature left him before the cross. Now, there's a lot of problems with that theologically that we're not going to explain today or examine. But imagine if you didn't have the teaching on Jesus' birth. It would be a lot harder to argue against that position. But the early church rejected it because we know that Jesus was God from the beginning because the Holy Spirit created the person of Jesus at conception. By the way, this has some implications for some of our debates today in culture. What does this say about where human life starts? Many today would say human life doesn't really gain value or they might say personhood until birth or even later. But if the Son of God became the person of Jesus at conception, that's when human life starts. That's when we need to protect it. Well, you're saying, so why does it matter that we know when the incarnation It's a nice theological point, but but why does it matter? Well, here's a reason. You serve a God who experienced weakness. To be more precise, he experienced weakness in his human nature. Why did some early Christians believe that Jesus only appeared to be human? And and that he ceased to be God before the cross. Well, they generally had a low view of human body, but they also thought it was inconceivable that God could come and experience the pain and frustrations and humility that comes with human existence. God would not let Himself be connected to a nature so weak and helpless. But the incredible truth is that Jesus did just that. You serve a Savior who knows what it's like to walk in this body who got sick, who stubbed his toe, who got cold in the winter. You serve a Savior who experienced the agonies on the cross. But you also serve a Savior who suffered the humbling prostate process of gestation. Kids, that means being born as a baby in your mommy's belly. Right? We sang today, God of God, light of light Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't raised Presbyterian, so that was a new verse to me when I encountered the Trinity hymnal. Um, if you have sung the Trinity hymnal all of your life, that might be a surprise to you, but many other hymnals keep that verse out. And there's a reason. It's translated from Latin, so let's give the original author the benefit of the doubt that it sounded really good in Latin. But let's be honest, it's pretty clunky and hard to sing in English. Yet yeah, we good Presbyterians keep it in. And for good reason, because no matter how well poetically it stops and gasps at wonder at the virgin birth. This God who is before all time, this light who gives beginning and meaning and purpose to this world. This God was not ashamed in the person of Jesus to be united to a human nature who was conceived in Mary's womb and grew, nurtured by his, her placenta and fed by her umbilical cord, experienced the rigors of labor he was carried in his mother's arms and nursed at her breasts. Jesus went through all of that. And the fact that Jesus was born with a human nature also means that there's great bo- value in the human body, both male and female. You could say male because he was born as a man and female because he was brought into the world, birthed and raised by a woman. What kind of God is this? It's a God who's willing to be united to weakness, to take a position of humility. But people today say, if they believe in a God, well, you know, my God's a God of love. And you say, of course, well, that's, that's nice, but how do you know that? I mean, is that just something you're thinking up? Because that would be nice to have a God as a God of love if he's there at all? Well, I know why God is love. Here's how. He came and entered the muck and misery of this beautiful but broken world for us. And Jesus didn't come to earth on a sightseeing tour just to get the sensations. He did it for your salvation. You see, then the virgin birth is the beginning of a new humanity. Christmas is a declaration that you need salvation. You need a Messiah, a Savior. Scripture says that Adam, the first man, was our representative of humanity, and he sinned. He stood for all of us. He represented us fairly, justly. And when Adam sinned, all humanity experienced that sin. We were declared guilty and inherited a sin nature. It's what we call original sin. Every child then born under a human father and a human mother falls under Adam's headship, his representation. What would happen then if God's Messiah was born in the ordinary way from a human father? And a human mother. Well, he too would bear Adam's guilt. How could a guilty one be a perfect substitute for others? This is what B.B. Warfield said, Assuredly, no one resting for himself under the curse of sin could atone for the sin of others. No one owing the law its extreme penalty for himself could pay this penalty for others. And it's clear from the Old Testament that the line of Adam was dead and dried up. Every single hero in the Old Testament, they may have been good leaders, but they all failed. None of them could undo Adam's sin. If God was going to work salvation, he would have to begin again and create a new representative. He would have to start over with a new kind of humanity. And Jesus is the beginning of that new humanity. Because it's a mystery, but because of the virgin birth, Jesus was born of God by the Holy Spirit and not from Joseph. He's not condemned by Adam's sin. He doesn't fall under his headship. Instead, Jesus is a new covenant head. He's a new representative. He's perfect in his actions in life and able to offer himself for his people. So when you, offer, when you accept the lordship of Christ by faith, you join, you're joined to him. You're no longer under Adam. You're no longer under Team Adam, and everything that happens to Adam happens to you. You are now part of Team Messiah Jesus. You're joined to him. Everything he has is yours, including forgiveness. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. And it's clear that he was, by every means, extraordinary and unique. You can go and argue all the ways that, just from history, Jesus stands out above everyone else, right? He was a poor peasant, he was never formally educated, he traveled maybe 60 miles radius. He never held a position of power. He died a humiliating death. And yet his teaching and his followers have shaped the world more than anyone else, hands down. You can tell that Jesus is exceptional. But it goes more than that. The virgin birth tells us that Jesus is unique. And it makes him unique because of his divine nature. This whole time we've been talking about how Jesus is God and man. And Jesus must be human to be able to identify as a sacrifice for you. And yet he must also be able, God to be able to provide satisfaction, to pay the extent of the sacrifice that you owe. One hundred years ago, the liberal theologians began to question the virgin birth. And they, they started to say things like, well, you know, we don't need the superstitious stuff. Jesus was a good man. He set a moral example for how to follow him. Jesus was exceptional, but he wasn't unique. And actually, a lot of people talk this way today, too. right? Jesus was a good teacher, and has, you know, he got some things right, and he got some things wrong. Well, again, B.B. Warfield dialoguing replied along these lines. If Jesus is not unique, then there is no salvation. it's not unique, and there's no salvation. He says, you know, you don't think you need the virgin birth, because you think you can save yourself. That you're a good person and and your good works outweigh your bad on the day of judgment. And again, that's not just a hundred years ago. That's today. I'm a good person. But you are far more lost and deserving of God's anger than you realize. And what difference does this make? That God must work in your life. Today we celebrate Christmas. We sing about the babe, the son of Mary. And that baby is your only hope. In the end, you will have two choices. One day you will stand before an infinitely loving yet holy God in all of his glory, beautiful and terrible. And this God must require absolute perfection or banish you to eternal torment. What Jesus do you want to stand by your side? Do you want the exceptional model who points you the right way so that you can do it all yourself? Or do you want the unique Jesus, the one and only God-man who steps in between you and the judgment throne and says, Father... He is covered. She is covered. This one is mine. You see, you can't save yourself. God must work. And he must work in your life. The virgin birth shows one aspect of how God carries out salvation in his people. Remember Mary and how disruptive it was? It just wasn't a theological nicety that she filed away on her shelf. It turned her life upside down. And through her, the Messiah was born who turned the world upside down. You can't hear the truth about Jesus today and just go away and say, eh, whatever. You must decide, will I humbly submit like Mary or will I walk away from this great salvation? And so I ask you, where are you with Jesus today? We are about to eat the Lord's Supper. And if you do not know Jesus, and now is the time for reflection. Look and see, and then seek him by faith. For those of you who belong to Messiah Jesus, come to the table. Now your risen Lord, your extraordinary champion, welcomes you to the table and serves you. God became man for your salvation. And that is good news. Please pray with me. Fathers, we ponder the mystery of your incarnation We ask that you would show us a hint of your glory to reflect your power in a way that we humbly receive your table. Thank you that you came down. Thank you that you seek us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.